0: Okay, we'll start. We'll maybe happy have a few more drifting in. Sound good for everybody? Okay, we had topics like food and stuff last week. This week we have topics like coffins and toilets and stuff. You notice I kept them in two different uh, sessions so we don't have them together. These will be kind of our final thing. There's lots of other things in the book, of course, and we'll talk about especially toilets and coffins. <laughs> This session started because somebody wrote a letter to us at the translation and said, did the Israelites have flush toilets? And I said, yes, but the whole story is a little more complicated. It depended on how much money you had and how devout you were. So we're interested in particular in the flush toilets, but we'll talk a little bit about the general background. The word toilet doesn't mean it has to be flush so even if they had outhouses they still had toilets or they could sometimes be called latrines i started this last week you don't have to answer it now but we'll come to it in a minute this is a public toilet in israel at a place called Bet She'an, up in the jezreel valley and the question i asked you last week is what's missing and i think you all immediately spot what's missing and we're going to talk about that a little bit more So what were the kind of toilets that they had? Well, this is a pretty good one, so I don't know if they'd use this. When I was a boy, we'd go to an old farm in Canada with my mother's aunt. They had no indoor running water. They did have a pump inside. They had no indoor toilets. And and in each bedroom, you had what in those days was called a chamber pot and it had a little lid on. Did any of you ever live in a place without flush toilets? A couple hands there. So... Uh, have passed along the way, and maybe experienced them. So they had things like our outhouses. A rule in the Bible was, when they were in the wilderness, they were told, you have to go outside the camp. So strictly Orthodox Jews thought, you are not allowed to have any toilets inside the city. They have to be outside the gate. And that will be a, an issue we'll talk about a little bit. So did they have them in their house? The, the Jews overall were pretty fastidious about modest dress, toilets, and all of that sort of stuff. So they would have had outhouses, and if they had a hole in the ground, it made good benefit for them because of diseases. There's a big problem in Africa and other places where they don't have good toilets. When they went out, they had to have a little shovel with them. So they couldn't be messy. They had to cover everything up. So they had things like outhouses and so on. The rule that you couldn't have toilets in the town were not followed, at least by the rich and wealthy. In the destruction level of Jerusalem, 586 B.C., last count there were about seven or eight of these toilets found in an area where the priests and the temple people and that would have been. So the rich and famous didn't necessarily think they had to go outside. And, of course, if you had them, some, there are some records in the Bible of te- toilets even on the second floor. Probably none of you are old enough to know what the night, night soil collector does. But in American cities, even into the 1900s, the stuff from the toilet has to go somewhere. It has to go down below, and somebody if, is going to have the task of getting that out of there. <laughs> And I mentioned last time that there's an archaeological specialty. It's called coprology, which is a specialty of studying the content of toilets. Now, that's not as bad as it sounds because after 2,000 years, all it means is the dirt is a little more colorful than the other dirt around it. So if they had a dump, you can often tell where it is. Well, why would you want to do that? Well, because it shows what diseases people had. You can learn a lot of things about their diet and so on. So it actually is some, some value in finding out, knowing more about the people. So this one is from Jerusalem, just south of the temple in around 586. And there are other ones from other cities. They don't have a standard plan. This one is kind of an interesting one because it was in a place where the, the bad kings had kept idols. And I don't think they converted the high place into a restroom, but it was kind of a symbolic statement. Where the idol had been, they made an outhouse of the place where the idol was. This was not a functioning toilet. It was just a, I'll call it a religious statement that they put this there. You can see the practical problem for really observant people like the Essenes. They're the people that had the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of them came and lived in Jerusalem. Their rule was, you cannot leave Jerusalem, the city, on the Sabbath. You cannot have a toilet in the city. So you can see about sundown on Saturday, there were some lines forming uh, by the city gates, and there's a whole lot of stories. The scenes then had a, a large public we'll call it restroom facility just outside the gates. And there's a lot of stories about that, but I won't deal with them here. <clears throat> public. This one is in Ephesus, where Paul was. And I think what we can say is about these public flush toilets, the only Jews that would go into these would be people who weren't very observant. You know, there were a lot of problems with the Jews who wanted to become Gentiles. One was in the athletic competitions, you exercised and competed naked. Strict Jews did not believe that you should do that. They were modest about that. And so I doubt that they used these. All of these, of course, were uh, usually associated with the baths and with the exercise, the athletic facilities. So only men would be using them, but these ones are in Ephesus. And you see what is obviously missing is any partitions and it can't be that they once were there and they're gone because that other one i showed you there's actually like two platforms and you sit on one leg on each one and so there can't possibly be any thing so they weren't particularly concerned about that <laughs> did they have flush toilets well yes they did in the cities they might have had some with running water but in these they definitely did this is an artist's conception of a public toilet the public toilet was also a social center. <laughs> in other words, you'd exercise. It's like if you talk or stand around the locker room after after you're done, and you, you know, catch up on the latest stuff. Another place that was a social center was the wells. When we lived in Russia, the garbage pickup was a social center. You had to wait. You had to stand and wait for the garbage truck with your bags, and then throw them in. So everybody would catch up on the gossip of the day in American cities even into the 20th century if you had to go out to the corner pump to get water that was a social center too and remember Jesus and the woman at the well she was trying to avoid the time when everybody else would be there so there was running water flush toilets so there's water running underneath the toilets and you see there's water running on the floor two channels going through and so They didn't have any sewage as far as we know, they just flushed it out in the street or somewhere in the sea, in the cities too. In medieval cities, that's why there was so much death and disease because there was no sanitation. Even into this century in Africa, that was a thing that often also occurred. And so you'd go in and you'd um, chat. A Jew who wanted to be like the Gentiles would go to the baths and stuff. Orthodox Jews generally would not, but even they did not necessarily follow the rule that the toilets had to be outside the city. This is again a drawing of one at Ephesus. I just blew it up a little bit. I hope it's not too blurry. Up on the top, you see a a bowl with a bunch of sticks sticking out of it? What is that? That's the toilet paper dispenser or more specifically, it's the toilet sponge dispenser. So you have sponge on a stick. So when you came in, I assume, you know, you picked one up on the way in. You see, that's why the trough of water is down there. So after you've used the toilet paper, good etiquette and polite, I'm kind of assuming that after it had been used, they threw it into the trough there and they had some attendant, restroom attendant, who checked them out. And so there's water running underneath, but there's always water running around the circle there (laughs) so that you can use the toilet paper dispenser. And so yes, they had flush toilets, but only the well-to-do. I'm assuming, I would think, if people like Caiaphas and that didn't have flush toilets, they had some that somebody else had to empty. There's even a story in the book of Judges the judge called Ehud, he had to assassinate the ruler of Moab. And the ruler of Moab had his restroom up on the second floor. And so Ehud closed the door, like the king was going to the bathroom, closed the door, and then he assassinated the king. Then he had a problem. How to get out? How do I get out? Two options. He could have jumped off the balcony, but then he would have been seen. Although I, I accept that idea, that he jumped off the balcony. Or he had to jump in the toilet pit <coughs> to get out. So next time you read the book of Judges, you can make your decision which of those two options you think he followed. So it was a very complex situation. Most people had something roughly equivalent to an outhouse. They maybe tried to keep it away from the camp. I don't think the Jews around the cities would have ever had open things where there wasn't something around the people, probably a mud brick wall. So they had pretty much all of the options that we might think of in regard to toilets, and yes, they had flush toilets. The rich and wealthy Jews did not follow the rules that they were supposed to be outside the city. Ordinary people probably did, and generally... We'd say sanitation among the Israelites would have been much better than most countries in the world at that time, at least for the common people, because God had given them rules outside the camp, keep everything clean, never leave anything that I don't think it ever says so people don't get sick, but it had that effect, so it was a good rule. So that was their situation as far as toilets. A lot of the things that have become common in the 20th century It's not that they didn't exist before, but only the very well-to-do and the people had servants to to deal with the less desirable aspects were able to do that. So any comments? Another... Well, they were using a sponge, but that doesn't mean that there was anything unsavory about using a sponge for other purposes. Yeah, but they were using, they didn't have like, what we have, our sponges aren't real sponges, are they? If you go down in Florida, you can still see them fish for real sponges in the tarpon uh, area, or north, just north of uh, Tampa. But they, they, sponges were common, and in fact, the sponge divers have found a lot of the ancient wrecks. You know, where there are shipwrecks and they find, oh, here's a pretty cool shipwreck, there's a lot of stuff in it. Because the sponge divers would be diving down. Just like in Japan, the ladies that were diving for pearls, they were the ones that found a lot of the, the wrecks. So uh, sponges were common, fairly utilitarian. We don't know exactly what the soldiers had there. We wouldn't have to associate it with anything else. Another thing which we don't have time to talk about now, but it's in the book, is water systems. And there's very fascinating. The big cities, they had underground tunnels. They brought water in in aqueducts from 30 or 40 miles away when we get to the New Testament times. They used cisterns to catch the rainwater. Remember in Israel, almost all the rain comes in winter, no rain, June, July, August. So they had to have big cisterns. When the Bible, when it talks about a pool, That's kind of misleading to us, because we often think kind of of a swimming pool. But these pools were reservoirs, and so you can read about them in the book. Like the pools at Bethesda, they're like much deeper than this building. Well, I don't say much, but like our ceiling, they're deeper. So you can see why the guy that couldn't get in the water very fast, after the rainy season, the water was 35 feet deep. In the dry season, it was maybe 3 feet deep, but you had to go down... 20 or 30 steps to get there so the whole thing of the water systems are quite elaborate tunnels under the city and all of those sort of things so you can look at them and read a little bit more about them if you're interested in them so any questions first on the whole water area so there's a brief summary of the water systems in there so pretty much all of these topics i have at least an hour powerpoint on all of them so there's We're just getting the, the light overview, the introduction. Okay, anything about that? Water is essential to life. No water, no life. Then death. Well, why did we have a discussion of coffins? Because the young man at Nain, the widow's son, when he's being carried out to his final resting place, we said he was being carried on an open coffin. And somebody said, well, the Jews didn't use coffins. They just wrapped themselves. Well, that's generally true, but it's much more complicated than that, too. So it depends on what do you call a coffin? I think we'd say a coffin is something where the body is going to stay. It's not just like a a stretcher that you're transporting them temporarily. The body is going to stay there, and uh, it's going to be with them. This is actually technically probably called a sarcophagus, which means flesh eater. Kind of a picturesque name. A sarcophagus is too big to be transported. Only a rich rich king or something would have it. So you bring the body there, you insert them. If you were really rich, you had a coffin that was placed inside the sarcophagus. The pharaohs, in fact, had as many as four coffins. You know, one coffin, and then that's inside another coffin, kind of like a Russian matryoshka doll, and then another coffin and then they're put in a big, very big, usually granite sarcophagus. And so what did the young man have? The Jews generally buried people very quickly, and they wrapped them, but they didn't leave them. That was not their final definition, destination. So we'll say you can have a stretcher, you can have a beard that they just carry you on. You can have a coffin that's transportable, but they leave you in it. And... You can be put into something, or they can make coffins around you. They put you in the ground, and they build the coffin around you. <clears throat> Again, that's probably not so much by the Jews except for the, for the well-to-do <clears throat> and the wealthy. This is making a coffin. You see the enterprising archaeologist there with his friend Delilah. Delilah. <clears throat> This was a Philistine, near. I don't think she was a Philistine, I think she was a Phoenician. But there's almost always grave goods. You can tell from the bones, of course, whether it's a man or a woman. But if the, the grave goods in this were female, and so we assume she was a Delilah, not a Goliath. Here you see what they did, because it's very sandy there. Incidentally, I stumbled on this lady the first day I was moved to the cemetery <clears throat> when I was excavating. And this excavating isn't our subject here, but how do you, if you how would you excavate a skeleton if you had to do it? What tools would you use? Dental tools. Mm-hmm. I'd use a dentist kit. So you kind of. Incidentally, your teeth are the best part of your body. I told you that last week, when everything else is gone, your teeth are still gonna be there. So what they did with this lady here, it's very, very different, the yellow sand and the red. They built a coffin around her, so, so she'd be, be secure in her resting place. They built a hard clay coffin around her, probably after, probably after she had been placed there. And so you, de- you do it with dental tools, you can use little paint brushes. The Hebrew term is fufu. What do you think a fufu is? You use a fufu. Squeeze the tube and goes, so you use dental tools and a fufu, are are your two primary tools when you're working. This of course is a controversial area. We can't talk about it, just like with some of the Native Americans. The Orthodox Jews get very upset if they believe the people being excavated are Jewish. They might allow them to be excavated and reburied. And so it, it can sometimes actually come to the point of violence. So I call these enhanced graves, but for our purposes here, I'm call, calling it a built-on-the-spot coffin. So coffin usually means it's a box, you can carry them in it, and you leave them in it. And may do something else with them. So that's one thing is coffins. You know that in the Bible, very often caves are the preferred burial place. There's a biblical expression, he rested, he lay down with his fathers. That was very literal. This I don't think is an Israelite one. I think this is a Canaanite one. You put them in, and then you just keep building the layers. So you have to excavate a burial site, and maybe the pottery in one level is quite a bit more recent than the one in the other. But the Israelites often use caves. There are many natural caves, but then they built caves. Jesus' tomb was undoubtedly a manufactured cave. The stone is fairly soft, so you build a little building carved into the face of the cliff. And that's where you are placed. They didn't seem to have much scruples about putting everybody together. In other words, after Grandma had her turn, there's just one bed. Grandma had her turn. We need the bed for the next generation. Sometimes there's a carved box, a little cave underneath it, and you throw those bones in there. Sometimes there are places, even in Christian monastic sites, where there'll be dozens and dozens of buried people. I think the idea was once the flesh is gone, then we don't have to be too worried about respect and dignity. While the flesh is still there, we have to do that and so the, they would be placed in a proper place. <laughs> At least two people, well one for sure and I think one very likely, were buried in coffins and probably really nice ones. Who would you think that were? This coffin is called Egyptianizing because it kind of looks like a, the cut-rate version of the elaborate Egyptian coffins. It's called anthropomorphic or anthropide, because it looks like a person's shape and so Joseph, obviously, probably had an A number one, grade A, <coughs> coffin, <coughs> probably at, probably gold. Not quite a two-tunked almond, but, you know, probably pretty good. That was especially important because eventually Joseph was going to be transported to Israel. Jacob was transported to Israel at the time of his death, after the period of mourning. It seems like he had received all the Egyptian treatments for burial. And so I think it's highly, highly likely that Jacob had a pretty first-class coffin that he could be transferred. We know nothing, of course, about where, how the patriarchs were par- buried in Machpelah. Everything, all the evidence is long destroyed. There's what's called a centetaph there. That means there's no more body, but you still keep a memorial there. So where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, there are memorial burials. So you see, this is shaped like an Egyptian. This is a place where it could be an Egyptian, a secondary official. I think it could be also somebody trying to imitate Egyptians. You know, like people used to try to imitate the French and stuff like that. You know, the latest styles from Paris or something like that. So probably these people probably are not Egyptians. They found these kind of by accident because they were covered in sand dunes, and then certain way you know sand dunes always move, so they found the cemeteries and then they kept looking about them. So these would be called anthropoid coffins, human shaped. Husband and wife can be buried together. At least we hope it was. Husband and wife. <laughs> there was there's one tomb right across from Jerusalem, Shebna is a kind of sleazeball Judean politician of the king. And he, has his, he, he built a tomb for himself. Isaiah says, you know, the country's going to ruin, and you're building big tombs for yourself. That's kind of, you're kind of a disgrace, Shebna. And what Shebna's inscription says on his tomb, he says, here are the bones of Shebna and his ama." Amma means made. Now, it could be a reference to his wife, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe Shebna needed a little more talking to by Isaiah on other issues besides the big expenses. The inscription, there they were concerned about people robbing the tombs and taking their uh, bones and stuff. So Shebna's tomb, it says, do not move my bones. Kind of, usually there's always a curse on it. If you move my bones, you're in big trouble. There's an inscription from one of the kings of Israel that says his bones were moved to another place, apparently for, for safekeeping. So here again, you see some grave goods here. If the guy's a real warrior, he might keep at least his favorite dagger or maybe even his sword. And so we don't know if they, could, if they would open one up again and add somebody. They certainly did that with the tombs but they could be buried together. If you were Jewish and you were observant and it was the time of Jesus, this is the coffin that you would end up in. They're called ossuaries, which means bone box. So again, after a year or so, when all that's left is the bones, they needed the space, but they maybe would have all around you'd still have you know, six or eight boxes, maybe three generations or something. The box had to be the length of the longest bone in your body, your leg bones. And so they would gather the bones after whatever the requisite time was, a year, two years, and they'd collect the bones in. And they're, these were nicely decorated if you were well-to-do, nice designs on them. They often had the names on them, but it seems like they were made and you'd buy one at the local undertakers and then you'd just scratch on the name. The most interesting one. Some people think it's a forgery. I'm not sure. The most interesting one, it's in Aramaic and Hebrew, of course, is Yosef ben Kaifa. Caiaphas was not his personal name. His personal name was Joseph. And this is Joseph Ben-Kaipha, son of Caiaphas. So it could well be that the one you could see in the Israel's museum, quite possible it's the ossuary of Caiaphas, the Caiaphas from the Gospels. So this is generally where Jews ended up. When Jesus was being prepared for burial, he'd be on a table like at the front. Because many of these tombs have like, you know, like four or five rooms generations go around they out he'd be they'd be working on him on a table and they would come there when they'd bring offerings and flowers and stuff like that and then you'd be put into I call it the morgue form some of the tombs you're put in like headfirst like you know you see the drawers in a morgue you're put in like that other ones are the bed form there's like three beds around and they're even very thoughtful they provide a little stone pillow So there was a, it it looks like a horseshoe, and so it kind of holds your head, a little stone pillow. So this is the main things that they did with burial customs. Our interest here is not the burial customs so much or all the tombs, it's just that question about the coffins. I think open coffin is still probably the best term. All of these terms are ambiguous. Beer can be the thing you carry them on temporarily. It can be a stand. Uh, if you watch a movie like Troy or something where they cremate the people, the thing they cremate them on, that can be called a beer. So all these, te- these terms are fairly flexible. And so whether, if it was going to stay with him, then it was an open coffin. If they're going to take him there, put him somewhere and take the thing back with him and recycle it, then it wouldn't be a coffin, it would be a beer. But that's basically the question of coffins. Did the Jews use coffins? I told you one of the main principles to follow and observe when you get these questions almost always they turn out to be a little more complicated than you were anticipating and there's a little more uh, stuff that goes into it and it's not just a cut-and-dry black and white thing whether they had flush toilets whether they had coffins and so on. So this is kind of the sarcophagus. Yes, they did, but it wasn't the common thing. Herod seemingly, he had really, really, you know, he went all out for his death. Bad Herod, first Herod, Herod the Great. So it was all gold and silver and, you know, mounds of flowers and incense and everything. Where he's buried is about, oh, 15 miles from Jerusalem, a place called the Herodian, it appears that he was put into a sarcophagus, that he was carried, people could see him, you know, on the parade. Probably everybody attended the parade. Why? You could be killed if you weren't at the parade. <laughs> he, he won. In fact, Josephus tells us, when Herod knew he was going to die, he rounded up officials from all the nearby towns and brought him to his place. And he said, when I die, kill them all, because I want some people to be crying on the day when I die. He didn't want too much happy days, they're here again, you know, cut loose partying. And so he said, kill them all so that at least somebody will be crying on the day I die. I don't want it to be nonstop celebration. But Josephus said the officials didn't, you know, now they didn't have to be afraid of him anymore. He was gone, so that they didn't do it. So that's a little bit about coffins. So anything about that? What's the time? Five two. Okay. This is the main one we want to do yet. We have a little bit at the end. So religious objects. Again, we could spend five hours on this. High places. That's a term It's good to be familiar with because you hear it all the time. It's a misnomer, kind of. And especially the idols. So a high place means something less than a temple often open air. Bamot is the Hebrew word. It's not necessarily on a high place. It could be in the city gate. Uh, it, it may or may not be. And so there were two kinds of high places. They were illegitimate shrines for like Baal and other gods. That was a lot of them. And those the good kings always destroyed. People also built high places to the Lord. Once there was a temple those were also illegal and illegitimate. And the good kings destroyed them. And so a high place simply means less than a temple. Where is the high place here? It's those stones down right in the front. In other words, it's not up on the top of the city where they lived; it's outside the city. So the high place, the Bama or ba'mot, is this place there. Incidentally, this is the first tell that the seminary excavated at, called Tell Mikal, Call. and there were some silver coins found there, you know, that somebody had stashed in the high place. So high place is a shrine; it can be of different sizes. It'll be more or less grand. The ones to the Lord. Were okay when Samuel was doing them. Why were they okay when Samuel was doing them? There was no temple. The tabernacle or the dwelling had been destroyed, and there was no temple. So people could make a sacrifice. Samuel would come and lead them in a sacrifice because there was no temple. Another expression you hear very often is the horns of the altar grabbing the horns of the altar. Well, there's many of these. There are probably 100 or 200 of them. And this is what they look like in almost all the ones there. Some are a little better than this. This one is kind of interesting. Do any of you know John Lorenz? He was a professor at various of our schools and so on. This was excavated by John Lorenz. And as you can tell from this, it was all in pieces. It was in Beersheba. So a good king probably Hezekiah, came and he said, crash it. So, they tore it all apart and they scattered the stones all over. And you see, they found a lot of the stones and they were able to reconstruct it. Why is that kid there? What is he doing? He's the yardstick. He's the yardstick. You always need a yardstick. Any good archaeological picture has to have a yardstick to tell you, to give you an idea of the perspectives. So, this is probably a typical altar from a high place at a moderate-sized city, but it was an important royal city, and so the horns of the altar, I don't think it actually quite says that in Exodus 21, but if you were at the horns of the altar, they weren't supposed to kill him. <clears throat> Joab, remember, he went over and kind of, he had been faithful to David, but he kind of, he worked with the conspiracy against, uh, against Solomon especially, and so David had told Solomon, there's some guys like Shimei. Joab and that, you got to deal with these guys because you're never going to be, be safe. And uh, So Joab, when he first heard that Solomon was out to get him, he ran in and got the horns of the altar. And so Benaiah, who was his hitman for Solomon, he came back and he said he was holding on the horns of the altar. I don't know if Solomon was a very good theologian or what, but I imagine he said, The way I read Exodus 20, it doesn't actually say that he's safe there. So you've got a warrant. You've you've got the authorization. You can't kill him there, but if somebody happens to carry him out to the courtyard and you're waiting for him, well, that's that's the way it's going to work. So these are the horns of the altar. That guy there is also a yardstick. And you see, this one is much bigger. You see, it's actually been destroyed, but you have the the bottom dimensions. This is at Tel Dan, way up in the north. The idolater shrines of the northern kings, who were they they dedicated to? The Lord. They claimed they were worshiping the Lord. Ahab and Jezebel, they had straight all-out Baal stuff, but not the other king. So what? if they were worshiping the Lord, what would you like to build there? A golden calf. Even in Exodus, it seems that they claimed the golden calf was a way of worshiping the Lord. And the Lord said, well, it's not the right way of worshiping the Lord. So these shrines were to be destroyed. So this is the one at Tel Dan, which is a very nice place to be. And you see it's much bigger than the Beersheba one idols they angered me all the way through these idols there were basically three types of idols of the males there was called the smiting god it's almost for sure Baal. what time is it what is it what okay so we got about 12 minutes yet the smiting god usually there was a club or a lightning bolt in his hand often he's standing on the back of the animal So probably they thought the golden calf was the pedestal for the Lord. And the Lord was standing, the invisible Lord was above. Then there's a seated God, that's probably El. He's kind of the old grandfather God. He isn't, people don't go to him too much. Baal is the God you go to, particularly because he's the rain God. And they were always rain challenged. You can see that they're usually made, the good ones, there's clay ones, of course. The good ones are made of bronze, but often covered with gold, or a lesser thing with silver. Again, there's a lot of calves covered with silver, so they probably weren't toys. They were probably worship calves. So you have the two. And then, of course, other gods and goddesses. Who, did you, who would you pray to? You were an idolatrous Israelite. El is a number one god. Baal is lower. You're not going to pray to El. What makes you think El has time for you? So there's lots of bales, just like there's lots of places for the Madonnas in the Catholic Church, the Madonna of Lourdes, the Madonna of Guadalupe, and so on. You went to your local bale, bale of Ekron, or bale of whatever. That was where you went. It's exactly the same in the Catholic Church, isn't it? Some of you, when I did the presentation on Ukraine, they would walk by the cross and go to the Shrine of Mary. So you go to, Jesus is kind of busy, Father for sure is pretty busy, so you go to Mary. That was the case here too. Some examples of bales. You can see a little bit of the leftovers there. The female gods are always quite sexual. <clears throat> this is the PG-13 version. It's much more graphic than this. It gets, usually the very, emphatic sexual depictions both on the top and on the bottom. And this is what they constantly talk about. The sad thing is, this is the late bronze form here, and they often have flowers and animals and stuff. The sad thing is, a good place to find these in the ruins of Jewish cities. In the same quarter probably where some of the priests were living, where I showed you where the toilets came from, they were images of these goddesses. I'm not quite sure what the whole psychology of it is. You can see that they have a mold there. So if you were there a pilgrim, you wanted to take one home with you, you know, they could, they could make some for you, mass produce them. Okay, those are our two main topics. What, do we have five minutes yet? Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about new twists on translations, but any questions up to here? Is what? It's believed that it's El, which is, you know, El, God. It's, it's short, the singular of Elohim. And a, a lot of the, like Hadad hey and all of these other ones you see in the Old Testament, they're really just forms of Baal. In other words, the thunder and lightning storm god, rain god that we depend on. That's why when the Israelites had a drought, what did they do? worship Baal. And of course, Ahab wanted that. What did Elijah say? Well, we'll see how much rain Baal's going to give you. I'll show up, you show up, and we'll see who actually provides the rain. And I don't know that he said this, he just did it. What was the penalty if you lose? Probably would have been for Elijah too. You better win. (laughs) Uh, He didn't win personally, of course, it was the Lord that won. I just want to talk a little bit about the translation. We tried to preserve fairly traditional translations, especially in well-known things, if it was possible. But in some cases, the understanding is a little bit diffi- difficult. And so we changed them to something that we thought would be more clearly expressing what the text actually says. The first one was traditionally translated Lord of Hosts. And what did hosts mean in those days? Angels. It really meant armies. But it meant the angel army. In the older hymn, book, hymn books and stuff that we have, it's called Lord of Sabaoth. That's not a translation. It's, on, on, it's Sabaoth in Hebrew. We'll just leave Lord of Sabbath. But the word actually means armies. It more, it's more like the World War II term My son is in the service. Everybody understood that meant the military service. It could be other kinds of service. So who are the armies of heaven? Primarily two. One, of course, is the angels. They have generals, archangels. They're arranged as an army, aren't they? They're under their commander-in-chief. The other is the stars. They all have their place, and they... March across the sky every night. Come back and march the next day. So when they say the Lord of Armies, sometimes you can tell very clearly that it's referring to primarily the angels or primarily the stars. Sometimes you can't really tell. So we thought when people hear Lord of Hosts, they think of party hosts or uh, hostess cupcakes or something. I don't know. But host, host doesn't make people immediately think of army, does it? And so we thought it would be better to have a term where it makes them think these are God's armies. And so we translated the Lord of Armies. The dwelling, we use that for what was traditionally called the tabernacle. Although we always footnote it. Footnote it, got a little. Pollen issues going on here. Footnote it a little bit. The Hebrew word just means dwelling. It's God's dwelling place with his people. In the New Testament, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. When people hear tabernacle, what do they probably think of first thing? Oh, they have nice music at the tabernacle. <laughs> pretty, ni- pretty nice choir out there in Salt Lake City. They think of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> in a Catholic Church, the place where they keep the consecrated host can also be called a tabernacle. So a tabernacle is more confusing to people. Dwelling is fairly simple. So, We're just trying to illustrate some of the principles. The rulers of the Philistines are always called lords of the Philistines. It's never the Hebrew word for lord. It's always Saren. In other words, Saren is a word like Pharaoh, which is an Egyptian word. It's a word like czar or kaiser. It's a title. A Saren, it seems to be the same root as the Greek word for tyrant. In other words, a not too democratic ruler of a city-state. That's what a saron is. <clears throat> and so the Hebrew always uses the word saron. And so we usually say, if we, ch- if we do this with Pharaoh, why don't we do it with sarin? And people will soon enough learn what sarins are. Children of Adam, that's kind of an interesting one. Adam, of course, is the guy's name. Adam can also mean a human being. And Adam can be... Mankind totality. So you could translate it mankind in many places. The Bene Adam. Well, it's it's not Adam because these are the descendants of Adam. So why are they called the descendants of Adam? Well, maybe because they're descendants of Adam. Adam. So in some cases where you have a passage, you know what sin comes on all the children of Adam or so Adam. We'll sometimes translate it the children of Adam, you know, where it's talking about the heritage of the human race. If that is the case, then there are more mentions than we might think about Adam in the Old Testament. You can't decisively prove it one way or the other. Who kind of popularized this idea? Son of Adam. It was either Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, right? So the idea that the mankind should be referred to as the descendants of Adam. Uh, We didn't think about it. I don't know if we were thinking about, was it C.S. Lewis or was it Tolkien? C.S. Lewis, yeah, so sons of Adam. So there's a case where you don't want to change too much unless you think the change will actually help people understand a little bit better. Just about time, huh? Okay, so we're kind of at our time. You can ask me more questions. If what is the numbers then? The, one, the, one. the numbers is the page in the book. Oh. Although sometimes the different printings, they may move a page or so. Okay, so there's a lot more in there. If you have a question on something in the book that you read, you can send me an email or something. We've probably covered 10%, maybe 20% at most, so there's lots of other issues that could be discussed, but it gives you a little example Of some of the issues you have to wrestle with in making a translation so we'll close with a prayer and then if you want to ask me a question while I'm taking my gear down here and getting it out of pastors way I'll be up here we thank you Lord that for our salvation we have not fairy tales or made-up stories or myths but everything deals with real people that lived in real times and lived very earthly lives different than ours but in some ways so much the same As we study how they lived, help us appreciate not so much what they did or the things they had, but how you use all these things and all these people and all these places to get the gospel from Eden through Jesus to us. Amen. Okay, thank you.